Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, welcome to Deconstructed. I'm your host, Ryan Grimm. I'm mostly back from my book leave. A big thank you to everybody who filled in. We're going to continue to have some substitute hosts here and there. I listened over the summer. I thought it was great. I thought a bunch of those episodes, all of them were were good. Some of them were even better than good. Today, we're going to be joined by Alex Holder, who is the uh, director and producer of the new series, uh, documentary series called Unprecedented, which is an inside look at the Trump campaign and the Trump White House uh, airing now or streaming now, whatever you call it, on on Discovery+. Plus, Alex Holder joins us now to talk about the unlikely way that he wound up you know, inside the White House in these in these bizarre days. Alex, uh, thank you so much for for joining me here. It's a pleasure. Really, really glad to, to be here with you. And so this is being recorded on Thursday, August 25th. Today is the two year anniversary of this adventure, this completely strange trip. How did you wind up in the, the Trump inner circle? I mean, it all started at the beginning of 2020. I'd been making a film about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I was in America. It was just before COVID actually arrived in America. It was at the point that I was in America. I think it had just landed in Italy. Early 2020, and I'm interviewing various people in America who were involved in some capacity with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I interviewed somebody, and a few people actually, but mainly one person who had previously worked at the White House and was in charge of the Middle East file. And he had then let, he had at that point left the White House and I was interviewing him for the project. And I had this crazy idea about why don't we make a film about Donald Trump and his family? And this guy happened to be quite close to the family. So the idea of making a film about the incumbent president of the United States is ridiculous, right? So <laughs> it wasn't really thought through. It was just, all right, this guy knows President Trump, so why not pitch him an idea about making a movie about you know the president? And then COVID happens, and yeah, these things all like obviously stopped. And but the conversation kept being being had, and, and I sort of persevered. And eventually, it got to a stage where I needed to go out to America and and meet with uh, with you know, the people in, in charge, essentially. I mean, of the family. And uh, I flew out in, on the 25th of August. And, and the truth is, is that I never in a million years thought we would be able to pull this off. But after having met the family, it, it now actually makes sense why it all happened. Mm-hmm. But the, I remember saying goodbye to my family, saying, I'll probably see you in 48 hours. And I didn't come back for six months, actually. And then it was just a whirlwind all the way through, a, a total roller coaster. What was it about the family after you met them? You're like, oh, no wonder they just allowed this uh, stranger with a camera to just follow them around all the time? So I think it was a few, there were a few reasons. I mean, one is that the family is, for lack of a better comparison, quite mafia-like in the sense that they only really trust the family. I mean, the family are the, the ultimate. And then it's friends or colleagues that they've worked with for years. And those are the people they really trust. So I was introduced to them by somebody that they were very close with. And so that's definitely one aspect. But the second and third was, 
I didn't have any political skin in the game, right? I was from the UK and they felt that the, as we know, that they feel that the media are biased against them and they don't really have, a, they don't really have particularly strong feelings towards the, the media landscape in the US, uh, except to those organizations that agree with their position, right? So uh, here was somebody that didn't have any skin in the game and I think, honestly, the, the British accent really helped. <laughs> uh, I mean, Trump is very, he, he's a massive fan of the Queen. And not to say that he thought there was any association between the royal family and myself, but I think he just thinks England or British people are, I, I don't know, some sort of elegance, maybe. I mean, it's, it's completely made up. And, and one person actually said to me that he, he sees, you know, the Trump family as like a quasi-royal family in America, perhaps. So maybe that's one of the... Uh, reasons why he likes mm-hmm. the UK. Also, they were convinced they would win. I mean, they were absolutely convinced they were going to win. And some of them obviously still believe they did. But they were convinced, and this is around, you know, early, end of August, early September 2020, the, the position was, we're going to win. The polls are wrong. It's going to be a repeat of 2016. And we're just going to do it again. So I think those are the, those are the main factors as to why they, they let me into their orbit. Did they ever unpack that that their idea of that the polls were wrong and they were going to win or was it just kind of articulated as a as an article of faith i think it was a mixture i mean the not not what with respect to 2016 that jared kushner does i mean it's not in the series but he does talk about how his analysis of the of the polls back in 2016 were, were very different to the way it was being portrayed or, or, or a different way of looking at it he was looking at it in a certain way and others were looking at it in a different way and he felt that his way was was accurate and you know it ended up being that he or at least you know, they won but as to whether or not his understanding of the polls were, were better or not I, i'm not sure but in terms of 2020 no it was very much like the mantra i mean i'll give you an example you know don jr's favorite rallying cry throughout the campaign was let's make liberals cry again which was obviously the idea that everyone was taking by surprise that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 and obviously everyone was very upset. And, and, he, and, and I think you know, some people would argue that it was a funny line. I actually thought it was quite cruel to, to make fun of that. But either way, it was part of the mantra, it was part of the, the, the lines, but we're always, you know, everyone else is wrong and we're going to prove them, we're going to prove that that's the case and that we're right. Uh, and they're always going to say that we're wrong. And that's what we have to fight against. Did any schisms develop along those lines inside the family after election day? It does seem like people like Ivanka eventually read the writing on the wall and were like, okay, every court has said that we've lost this election, this election's over. You know, how long did that take? Did his sons stick by his side? Did the, did his sons believe it and, you know, believe it until the very end? Or, or did they know that he lost, but were kind of so afraid of their dad that they would just tell him that he won? Well, you know, my interactions with all three of the eldest children were always that they would do everything they can to support their father. And they would, and maybe they'd articulate things slightly differently, but at the end of the day, they would always come to the same place. They would never really, in any way, shape, or form, disassociate themselves from their father's position. And in fact, you mentioned Ivanka. And Ivanka, when I interviewed her for the second time, and this was in the White House, about nine or so days after the Attorney General had made his statement to AP where he said that there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support any of the claims that the president was making. Uh, she still said to me very clearly uh, that uh, her father should continue the fight. And at this point, all the court cases had finished and there was absolutely no fight really to, to, to have. But she maintained her father's position very clearly 
when she was in the White House when I interviewed her for the second time. And obviously we know that she said something different to the January 6th committee. So that was interesting. I think from my point of view, it was a complete echo. I mean, Eric, in my second interview with Eric, which is after January 6th, he once again just doubles, triples down on the fact that his father had won. And he says things like, you know, I will never ever accept that my father did not win the 2020 election. So, you know, he, he, at least from my perspective, absolutely believes that his father won and that the election was, uh, was stolen, but had absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support it. I mean, the best, this was always, I mean, I, you know, when, the, when these guys were speaking, it was, there were times where I was like thinking maybe I've missed something because one of his pieces of, you know, inverted commas, evidence was that there's no way his father couldn't have won because more people turned up to his father's rallies than President Biden's. I mean, like, how, how it's like, what? I mean, how does that work? It doesn't, doesn't work by number of people at rallies. Like, you have to put an X in the box, right? Mm-hmm. And so you had said that there wasn't really much fight left to have, but of course there was the fight on, the actual physical fight on, on January 6th. What was, you know, how did that day start for you and how much of it could you see coming from your vantage point? So the truth is, is that the night before I I was in an elevator with Michael, who was our director of photography, and we were in the elevator, we're going up uh, to to our respective rooms. And I said to him, it was like a completely like we were standing in silence. And I just said, you know, he's going to make them all march on the Capitol tomorrow. And then there was like another like awkward silence. And then we sort of half laughed. But we, we generally believed it to be a possibility and that it would it would kick off. And so we planned various things that we would do in the event that it did happen. Um, I mean, our plan didn't really work, but <laughs> that, was, uh, that, that was predicted. And, and, and the reason I felt that was because it was just so obvious, really, in the sense that for you know, the weeks preceding, Trump had been going out full on all these rallies saying how the election was stolen. He's telling 75 million people that voted for him that their vote didn't count. And then he obviously bigged up this ridiculous idea that there was a way of intervening in this ceremonial process on the 6th of January uh, to interrupt the certification of the Electoral College votes, which would allow him to remain in office or, or at least delay the process. I mean, you know, it was obviously completely ridiculous, but he was going on about that. And, you know, the usual, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink comments he would make about the vice president in the rallies he had in Georgia the day before. So, like, this is not the candidate, right? This is the incumbent president of the United States of America, uh, rallying all his people to the Capitol to uh, to give this this crazy speech, which he then gives, and and he explicitly says, "Yeah, let's walk, you know, march down and walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, and we need to fight like hell." Yeah, so it was those people were there because he invited them to be there, and and they went to the Capitol because he told them to go, and it was it was a very interesting. It started off as very interesting day. I mean, I go into detail. It was a freezing cold day actually, and we got there very early. And I remember it was one of the few if not the only time where there was no Wi-Fi given to the journalists, which was quite hmm. funny. Normally they gave Wi-Fi. There was no Wi-Fi. And it's funny because the password for the Wi-Fi after the election for all the rallies, the subsequent rallies that Trump did and his you know, children did after uh, the election was called, what they called the Stop the Steal rallies, the Wi-Fi password was like rigged election, <laughs> which I always thought was just, just quite, quite funny um, and ridiculous. But there was no Wi-Fi on that day, actually. And it was freezing cold. And, you know, people are coming in. It was an incredibly large crowd, um, uh, which Trump likes to talk about a lot, actually. You know, the only thing that matters on the day 
of January 6th, Trump will say, was just the most enormous crowd of people. Uh, so, so there were lots of people. And, and the feeling was quite, at the beginning, was very joyous. And then it became this feeling of like a religious fervor. I mean, people were genuinely praying that Trump would be able to, to pull this off. And, and, then it then, and, and then when people started marching down to the Capitol, you, you know, this really interesting mix of people because you've got like, you know, families with, with, uh, with kids as well as people who were really passionate and felt they had to go and, and do something. And then obviously it turned into this incredibly dangerous war zone-like uh, atmosphere where yeah, we, we capture, I mean, Michael is an incredibly brave, brave camera operator who was literally right on the steps of the Capitol and, and witnesses one of Trump's own supporters uh, being crushed and dying on the steps of, uh, of the Capitol, people bleeding on their faces whilst attacking policemen, using wooden sticks and yeah, the American flag and, and poles to try and you know, attack the, the police that were barricading the, uh, or, or sort of protecting the entrance to the, to the capital. So it was, it was just extraordinary and, and pretty horrific, actually. And, and you might have thought that the access that you had to Trump and the family might have been restricted after that, that, okay, we, we tried a coup, it failed, like we're going to button things down at this point, but the project continued. And I'm curious what you picked up in the days after that, in the weeks after that, from people in the White House about that day, and like, did did you hear anything about that that this this famous slash infamous moment in the Beast, where where Trump is you know saying, you know, I'm the effing president, take me down to the Capitol, uh, and you also you know you, you had this surreal exchange with uh, with Mike Pence. I want to hear want to hear some about that, but yeah, did you pick anything up as the days went on about the family's kind of reaction to January sixth? So, I mean, in the immediate days after, I mean, literally six days after we were back in the White House interviewing the vice president. Uh, but in the interim period, there were a few interesting things that did take place. So, for instance, we were in conversation with some of the staffers at the White House and they were saying how they didn't have the manpower to do the various things that we wanted to do because people were just leaving. So I think a lot of people at the White House left. I mean, the truth is that I was on this Reddit thing yesterday and somebody asked whether the Trump White House was, was it like organized chaos or was it essentially a shit show? And it really was. I mean, from the beginning, I mean, all the way, my entire experience, having been to the White House multiple times during this project was that no one really knew what was going on. And it was a really very bad. And I just, obviously, I've never been to the White House on, under any other administration before. So I didn't really know what to compare it to. But I guess, yeah, it, it just, it seemed very odd the way things were happening and how, scared people were of President Trump as well. I mean, we can come to that in a sec. But in terms of the immediate aftermath, you know, I, I got the feeling that things were just falling apart internally. But in terms of whether I heard anyone tell me about you know, President Trump you know, attacking or, or, or screaming at Secret Service, no. Uh, and, and I can certainly say that I did not see any ketchup either uh, whilst I was mm -hmm. there. But, uh, but, but when I was interviewing the vice president, there was, without doubt, an incredibly... Uh, you know, negative, depressed atmosphere at the at the White House. And we did it in the vice presidential ceremonial office, which is in the building opposite the, the actual White House building. And that's a key day, right? That's a day that he's on the brink of assuming the presidency in some ways. In some ways, yeah. I mean, that was a day where they wanted, where, where Congress, the House of Representatives, passed a resolution essentially demanding him to invoke the, the 25th Amendment. 
and we witnessed the moment where he sees the draft resolution and uh, which is pretty extraordinary and we also there's also this uh, also very interesting moment when he's leaving and the interview had been delayed quite a few hours and he was actually apologetic about it and said i'm really sorry about the fact that you've been waiting so long and he goes on to say but we've had quite a bit going on today which was quite uh, somewhat amusing, I guess. Uh, but it, but yeah, it was interesting because also a lot of people, you know, they, they, were, um, they were packing to leave, right? I mean, the inauguration was only a couple of weeks later. So there were like tables that were like upside down in the corridor and boxes and things and all sorts of, it was just a very strange time to be there. But obviously the, the atmosphere was, was really negative. I mean, people were very looking down at their feet and um, sort of like walking along the corridors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you saw the news about the the raid in Margalago, looking for his looking for these, you know, retrieving these classified documents, anything about your experience in those final days, or or just knowing the atmosphere in the last several months, that gave you any insight or any any guesses as to what might be going on here? Sure, I mean, I think Donald Trump is a very, you know, quite basic, straight. Well, not say straightforward, but simple guy to understand. I mean. He didn't see the presidency in any way in the, in, in the manner of which the, the previous 45 individuals did, right? I mean, he saw it as you know, this was, he owned it, right? So, so anything that has his name on it or anything that's written to him in his mind is his. So why not take boxes of documents such as letters written between him and his, one of his favorite characters, it seems, Kim Jong-un, you know, back to to his house and they belong to me. So why should I give them up to anybody else? So I think it's, it's as simple as that. And, and that's the way that he always came across to me. And the best way of looking at it really is that Trump doesn't understand how people don't like him unless he doesn't like them first. He's incredibly egocentric, obviously, as we know, and, and narcissistic. And to him, these letters and these documents belong to him. So you know, with Trump, everything's kind of surprising, but you also are not that surprised as well because yeah, having met the guy and interacted with him and seen him, it's it, it's like, well, obviously he's going to take them back with him and put them in his drawer because he probably wants to show them off to people. Yeah, look at my letter from mm-hmm. Kim Jong Un. So uh, I'm, I wasn't particularly surprised, but it's also the worst place in the world to keep classified documents. And so, what is he like in in private? Because he is, like you said, a figure who he it just seems everything about him just seems to be on the right on the surface for you to to read and to 
to love or to hate. But what is there when he thinks the cameras are off? What's is there anything that you wouldn't have known going into it about him? So not much, really, really is, is the honest truth, which, which, which did surprise me. Yeah. I, I thought there would be a bit more. I mean, look, he puts on a certain persona when, when the cameras start, and, and like physically. I mean, he'll, he'll sort of tug his shirt down or sort of pull his suit, and then his face like contorts and changes into a more, more I guess, aggressive type of facial expression, right? So he does put on a certain facade when he is about to start speaking. But, but off camera, he is really what you would expect. It's all about him. It, it's all about everything that he has and owns. And you know, for instance, you know, you always have a small talk at the beginning before an interview starts. And small talk with, with Donald Trump is, is interesting because I said, Mr. President, the last time we spoke, we were at the White House. And he goes, oh, yes, but Mar-a-Lago is much more beautiful, right? Yeah, everything about him, there's always a comparison to something else that he owns. You know, a plane flew over during the interview and it interrupted. And I said, oh, there are not that many planes that fly over the White House, right? And, and that's obviously true because they're, they're probably, you know, it's probably, I guess there's restricted airspace around the White House. And he's like, oh, yeah, but like, no, there's still planes that fly over the White House, right? Like, he can't accept that, that he's in any, that he's been relegated or that he's lost or that anything he has is less impressive mm-hmm. than, uh, than, than anything else that he doesn't have. He's the kind of guy where he hears a really great word and then starts using that word in a sentence for the next six months. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's, that kind of, he's that kind of person. And he had a real brush with death with his, uh, with his COVID infection. I was surprised. Sir, you have COVID. I said, I have COVID. What are you talking about? This was my father, first and foremost, and of course, our, our country's president. And it was incredibly frightening. But when you're a certain age, it's uh, something you have to be very careful about. Because I know people that have been devastated by COVID. You know, I know people that have died. I know five or six people, friends of mine that have died, some very good friends. Who he knows got the virus, uh, that's what shaped his thinking. The overall stats around the country didn't seem to impact him as much as the power of anecdote. He was almost blasé when when I called him that morning. He went to the hospital very early. Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know, I'm okay. Um, in a way that a father, I think, would say to his daughter, not wanting her to be too afraid, but I, I heard it in his voice. I mean, I know him. So I knew right away that he was he was not okay. Alex, did, did any of that surprise you? So that did surprise me. It was interesting because during the campaign when President Trump got COVID, the White House position was that he's fine and it's just routine and he's totally okay. When I asked him about COVID, this is about six months or so after he left office, and this is in Bedminster at his golf course in New Jersey. And he actually really goes into quite a bit of detail about what it was like. And, and, and he said, it, you know, he was scared and that he starts talking about how he knew people who had died from COVID. And he says that he knew about five people, friends of his. And I'm thinking, well, you were, in fact, the president of the United States of America, where tens of thousands of people died from this virus. But to Trump, it's always about the he can't associate with anything bigger than just his own circle. So to him, he's saying, oh, I was scared because a few people I knew got it Mm -hmm. and got very sick and died. And then Ivanka also, when I interviewed her about the subject, she says 
when I spoke to him on the phone, he was trying to make me you know, feel okay. But I could hear it in his voice that he was really sick. So that was a real sort of revelatory moment in a sense of them expressing how sick he really was and how the White House were not being particularly honest with the situation that he had, uh, that he had found himself in. It is fascinating to think that in order for it to penetrate, he had to know people personally that it happened to. But then on the other hand, did it even necessarily penetrate? Like, what's the evidence that this near-death experience and the fact that his friends had died from it actually then went beyond that? Or does he sort of separate what he was doing as president from what he knows and believes? Like, is does he see it as completely theatrical so he doesn't actually see any kind of contradiction between knowing that this is a deadly disease that he almost died of, but then talking about it publicly in a completely different way? Yeah, I mean, a good example is, is that the, after he got COVID, he could have pivoted to a more, lack of a better word, refined position on, on the subject, right? But instead, he doubles down and he uses the fact that he survived COVID as basically being this argument that he's this very strong person and that if he can survive it, anyone can, which was obviously yeah, an awful thing to say and, and, and pretty you know, horrendous, frankly. He doesn't really separate much. He, he sees everything as showbiz, in a sense, right? Or he sees everything as just the mechanism to maintain what he cares about most, which is Trump and the brand, right? So everything in his life is about that. Even when he's talking off camera to random people at a golf course, He'll be saying the same things that he says on television, which is you know, that the election was stolen. And then he'll try and get people to agree with him. You know, he's a guy that you know, he'll, he'll like, sort of use his shoulder and he'll like, nudge you. you know. Yeah, you agree with me, right? You agree with me. I mean, like, he needs that adoration and he needs, the, he needs to know that other people agree with what he's saying. And that is it's fascinating, but also incredibly dangerous. Want to play a couple more clips? Laura, do we have the North Korea clip? Everyone thought because of my personality, I'd be in war within 24 hours. And look at North Korea as an example. Whatever happened in North Korea? North Korea was very hostile. They were getting ready to go to war. And I get along with Kim Jong-un. I get along with him great. And we had no war with, and it would have been a bad war. Big army, nuclear weapons all over the place. And... Whatever happened to that, right? You'd say, whatever happened in North Korea? Do you remember how hostile that was four years ago? It was going to, uh, President Obama said, the biggest problem you have, really? You know, hasn't been a problem for me. And what, Alex, what's so remarkable, well, there's a million remarkable things about it. <laughs> yeah. you know, one being, of course, like North Korea and South Korea were engaging in their own bilateral negotiations, you know, for a long time. And we're getting close to some type of detente. And Trump comes in at the very end and kind of just signs off and says, yeah, hey, me too. But the reality of the whole thing aside, what, what, did, you, what did you take away from his analysis of how his personality and his relationship with Kim Jong-un just resolved this? I, I mean, it was just, there's so, I agree, there's so many things about, about that clip that, and I, I can't not laugh when I, when I watch it. And I, I've seen it quite a few times. Number one, this is taking place. He is the incumbent president. This is about a month after he loses the election. This is in the White House. And, and a man with a nuclear football is like a few meters away, right? And he is going on about how, you know, he, I mean, because of my personality, it's just, I thought it was a hilarious line. And he starts talking about, 
you know, I didn't go to any war and Kim Jong-un is, is, is one of my, uh, you know, we, we get on great. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's just, it's astonishing to, to hear him say these kind of things in a way where he is just totally oblivious to the idea that the man he just says he gets on great with is, is committing some of the most heinous war crimes in William living memory, right? So that, that's just extraordinary. And how he thinks because of his personality, that's the reason why North Korea are, what, are, are not firing off uh, these, these nuclear weapons, which he says are, are all over the place. I mean, it, it's just extraordinary, actually. I mean, other people have written about this. You know, he sees Kim Jong-un as a, as a tough, hard leader. And, and so the fact that he has a relationship with him must mean that he's a, a tough, hard, hard leader as well, right? There's plenty of foreign policy experts that can analyze this far better than me. But I think what I found so extraordinary was just the way he articulates certain points and always, again, compares himself to previous people. So he brings up President Obama, who had told him, that North Korea was a serious issue. And he says, well, it wasn't you know, a big problem for me. So therefore, I'm better than the, 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 previous, the previous president. It's always about comparison, and he's always the best, and he has to be the one that resolves everything. And Laura, can we play that, that last one? It was the greatest campaign I've ever seen, uh, except for one thing. They rigged it, you know, they rigged the election. So the, expre- the expression is, and we heard it, and we hear it, it does seem like he's serious about this stuff oh yeah like th- that this is not a put on for him is that is that is that your read that he's he's just utterly convinced that there was a massive conspiracy yeah absolutely absolutely wow that's even more disturbing than the the alternative, maybe. I agree completely. I absolutely agree. Because when every single person around you is telling you that there's no evidence to support anything you're saying and you need to stop, and he is ignoring everybody, and he's maintaining this position all the way through, even after he is no longer in the White House, and he's seen the ramifications of what this insanity has caused, I mean, when I was in Mar-a-Lago with him and we were talking about January 6th, he actually makes it very clear. You know, in the past, people were saying, and he was also saying in, in, in some capacity, that the people that went into the Capitol were not actually his supporters and there were all sorts of conspiracy theories about this. In Mar-a-Lago, he clearly says that the people that went in there, he draws a link to them being his supporters and he says that they're smart people. So you know, this is, he's essentially okay with what, what, what happened on January 6th, he condones it, and he's maintaining the position all the way through. And and he says it publicly, but he also says it in that clip privately to people who were at his golf course. So he is not changing his position, regardless of whether he knows the cameras are on or or whether he thinks the cameras are off. And and that, I believe, is, is incredibly dangerous. And in no way does that take away a person's culpability or responsibility for it. People believe lots of things that are not true and will face the consequences for their actions, regardless of whether or not they say, well, I believe it to be true. It doesn't work like that. Having watched him up close, did you get a sense 
of what his appeal is to the 70 plus million people that voted for him, despite everything we know about him? So you know, I'm not going to generalize on, on, on everybody. And I think there are lots of reasons why people may have voted for him. You know, people, I think, in America vote a lot of the time based on party and they may hold their breath for a particular candidate, but they have and always will vote Republican or Democrat or, or whatnot. I think that at the end of the day, Trump is, uh, he is good at being a demagogue. <laughs> he's very good at it. He's, he, he, he's very good at, at being able to say the things that people had for a very long time not said out loud. He, you know, he essentially says, I'll solve all your problems and vote for me and I understand you and I'll give you everything you want. It's just he's the typical demagogue. And, you know, he is very good at standing up in front of tens of thousands of people and, and riffing. And, and he, that's where he gets his most enjoyment. It's essentially his drug. And, he, and, and the incoherent pivots that he always does at these speeches are based on his feeling that the crowd are not adoring him enough based on the thing that he had just said. So he'll move from one you know, bit of rhetoric to another bit of rhetoric without any connection because he's just waiting for that applause. The, you know, I love you chant really, he really loved that a lot. And he wants that all the time. So he, he promises people everything. And that's, that's what, that's his game. Yeah. I, I had heard that the, he didn't initially like drain the swamp. He thought it was kind of cheesy, uh, but he tried it out at a rally and got a massive reaction and so just made it just made it his refrain did you watch him trying out different riffs and discarding some and grabbing on to new ones like in real time i I think by the time that we were there with him at various rallies he had nailed his few that he liked uh which were the same as we'd had previously you know whether it's drain the swamp or make american you know great make america great again or yeah clinton would come up and and he would do the usual rhetoric uh, about her but what, what I did find was very funny, just talking about, you know, the, the idea of pivoting was, you know, he'll be at a, at a rally in, I don't know, Omaha or something, and he'll start talking about how impressive it was to move the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And it, di- it didn't get sort of a, a particularly big reaction. So he'll immediately change from that to, we built the... Never mind. Yeah, no, exactly. Never, don't, don't worry about don't that. Don't worry about it's... that. It's, it's, the wall and he starts talking about the wall so there's no connection between the two but uh, but then that obviously gets a massive massive reaction so uh, but i'll give you one really interesting thing that he did which uh, i just thought was extraordinary i couldn't believe it is that trump used the apparatus of the presidency brilliantly to show to showcase his power and authority to his fans and one example is he would make sure that Air Force One would take off at the exact crescendo of Nessun Dorma, which was the final song that plays when he leaves after YMCA. And then he does his little dance and he walks up to the, to the, uh, to the plane. Nessun Dorma is playing and the plane will literally take off at the exact crescendo uh, of the song. Hmm. So you've got this amazing uh, Pavarotti singing and you've got this amazing, beautiful you know, moment. And then suddenly you hear this huge roar of Air Force One going off. And he just did that every time. So he, he's pretty good at the whole TV showman, you know, the show business. I mean, that, that is his thing, isn't it? 
Well, so can he give it up? What's what's your sense on whether he takes another run at it? So I think I'm in the minority here. I think he's it's inevitable that he's going to announce he's running. As to whether or not he ends up actually running, I'm I don't think he will. That's purely really based on a few factors. One is is that whenever he's failed in the past, he does the same thing, right? It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It was rigged. It was stolen. You know, etc. Cetera, et cetera. The, the vote counter. The vote counter, exactly. And then he pivots to something else. He moves to a, to a completely different thing. He doesn't go back and do the same thing again. So that seems to be the trajectory of his life. So to go again once he's failed uh, seems to be a departure from the norm. Uh, and also, I think, you know, if he, if he loses, it's going to be difficult to maintain the, this nonsense that it was stolen again. Uh, I mean, obviously, it wasn't even stolen in the first place. So I'm not sure. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. And also, I think a lot remains to be seen what happens in November with the midterms. And look, a year and a half or so until this thing starts is, is a long time for American politics. So who knows what will happen? Well, congratulations on the, on the documentary. It's, it's quite something. Uh, I loved the exchange between you and I guess it was his lawyers or maybe even with him where they said, you know, you can't post these clips. We have editorial control and, and you, <laughs> I guess, pointed to the language and said no. And they, and they just completely copped to it. I'd, I'd never seen that before. They just said, we were wrong. You're right. We thought we had editorial control. Uh, we, we do not. Have you heard from the family? How, you know, what, what they think of it? Is their family friend uh, in trouble for in, inviting you in? In terms of my conversations with them, with the family in the last few uh, weeks and months, I've been somewhat circumspect and, and not really answering that just because of the nature of the whole January 6th committee hearings. And, and there's also, I was mm-hmm. subpoenaed by, by the Fulton County investigation as well. Uh, but I hope they've, they've watched the series. And, and if they haven't, Discovery Plus, and they get a free one-week trial. <laughs> so they can, they can binge it. Well, Alex, thank you so much uh, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.